Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chelsea, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming to you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jackie from Houston, we have Rahul here from Connecticut, and we have Alex back after a short bout with COVID, but I believe you're still testing positive for a few more days, right Alex? Yes, still positive, but feeling a lot better right now. So uh, glad to be back and hopefully I'll test negative soon and uh, can get out of my little hotel room quarantine. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> I hope Jurgen Klopp's not doing your testing, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I get a few false positives if that's true. <laughs> no, but it, it's good to have you back and, and good to see that you're you're recovering. And at the risk of spreading those rumors, Rahul will slide <laughs> over that comment very, very quickly. But Raul, why don't you take us into your background today? I see you've got a very handsome Frank Lampard in his dapper suit and then with his Chelsea jersey over there. What's today's episode in honor of? Today's episode, I guess it's in honor of two people. And uh, it's obviously Lampard, but also Tuchel, because today is exactly a year uh, since the firing of Frank Lampard. Uh, And tomorrow will be a year exactly since the signing of Tuchel. So kind of um, wanted to pay tribute to Lampard and give some credit to Tuchel. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's been a whirlwind of a couple of years. I mean, not just this momentic moment when we've got Tuchel and Lampard left, but a couple of wild years for Chelsea. I mean, maybe let's dive into a couple of key moments and kind of talk through what's happened since then. Uh, Like you said, a year ago, Lampard was let go. Alex, your initial reaction, I mean, I know we've covered this in a previous episode, but just to kind of share your thoughts from that year on. Yeah, I would say I think most Chelsea fans uh, felt sorry for Frank Lampard. Obviously, we had the utmost respect for him as a legend of the club. Um, He was always classy on and off the pitch. His press conferences showed how much he loved the club. He was always professional. um, And he had such a great relationship with the fans. Um, You could just tell the players liked playing for him. The fans loved having him in charge. Um, and he, he did amazing things bringing through some of these youth talents, uh, stepped up in a tough time for our club. So for me, it was, it was something that I had seen maybe coming because we've, we've watched the Chelsea manager uh, windmill spin for a while. And we know that when results get tough, uh, managers are on the chopping block, especially when someone didn't quite maybe have the pedigree of uh, a, a winning coach um, or at least winning trophies. Uh, like Frank Lampard, very early in his managerial career, you knew it was sort of uh, lurking around the corner. And I think, like many other Chelsea fans, I was certainly upset. I was certainly sad for sad for Lampard, sad to see him go. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I felt like it wasn't like a huge tarnishing point on his legacy because in my eyes, he he stepped up and came to the club knowing full well. I mean, he was a player here. He saw the managers rotate in and out of the door. He saw Abramovich sacking people left and right. So I'm sure he knew full well there was a chance he would he would get the boot. Um, but he still came to our club in a time when I think many top managers in the world weren't necessarily looking to come to Chelsea. We had a transfer yeah. ban. We'd lost Eden Hazard. Um, we were looking like it was it, it was a tough period for us. Um, and this was, this was sort of, he stepped up, he stepped up and, and just as a club legend should guided us through a tough period, got us qualified for the champions league, put us on a great start through the group stages, broke some impressive young talents through the ranks. Um, and then I think, I think it was a pretty amicable parting of ways on all sides. He didn't seem 
uh, too hard done by. I think the, the board communicated that they still have the utmost respect and hope to see him back one day. Um, so for me, it was, it was bittersweet, but um, I've just got full respect for what he did and, and his time at the club. So I would say I was certainly sad, like most Chelsea fans. I would have loved to see him go on and start a dynasty with us, but maybe uh, looking past that nostalgia, we can realize it was a little too soon in his career for that sort of uh, thing to take place. And what happened, happened, but forever uh, forever going to be grateful for his, his stint at the club. Nicely said, Alex, and you brought back some fond memories. I couldn't help but crack a smile here or there, and I know Rahul was as well. Well, he covered it very nicely. I mean, of course, with Frank Lampard, of course, was Jody Morris as well. And so good words all around for both of them. But Frank Lampard leaves a huge legacy. Alex touched on it. Maybe you can share a little bit of youth players, maybe a couple of names that have come through and are still in the system today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his legacy, like you just mentioned, is going to be focused on the youth players and, and ushering in a new era uh, with the academy boys, at least. Mason Mount, you think of who... Uh, Captain his last game, uh, Lampard's last game as manager, uh, Reese James, who who turned out to be or and is turning out to be one of the right best right backs coming through uh, in England, and we have Tammy Abraham, Tamori, Hudson Adoy still in the squad. Uh, so there's a lot of players here that he kind of ushered in and brought through from from the academy into the first team, and I know a lot of people will say, well, he had a transfer ban. But he still had enough players and enough experience in that squad to say, you know what, I'm not going to put my trust in these young guys. I'm just going to give them a couple of games here and there. But he said, no, I've seen them. I've seen them work hard. I've seen them put in the minutes, put in the hours of training and, and games. And we're seeing that now, even even after he's gone, Tuchel, who's proven to be uh, a great manager, has come in and, and used those guys. Yes, Tammy Abraham has moved on. Yes, Tamori has moved on. But some of those guys are still here and, and Tuchel himself is bringing in new players from the academy. So uh, coming back to Lampard, that's definitely going to be his legacy. And you think beyond the academy players, there's Kai Havertz, another young guy who came in, Timo Werner, another young guy who came in, Edward Mendy, who's, who's not very young, but he is young for a goalkeeper. Uh, and he's turned out to be an excellent signing. So uh, for everything that went wrong towards the end of the Lampard era, uh, there was a lot of positives and, and, uh, he almost has set us up for the next decade or so, kind of like Mourinho did in that first uh, first stint. Yeah, you know, guys, it's one of those interesting things as well. Chelsea and Alex alluded to the managerial merry-go-round. We sometimes bring in managers, Jose Mourinho, who, you know, a lot of Chelsea fans remember fondly, but also towards his end of time or his 10 years, both times leave some sour taste. And then, of course, there's managers like AVB, that split decision, you had Benitez come in, that split decision. But one thing about Frank Lampard, I think when he was signed or when he was brought on, he did not split decision. I think every Chelsea fan out there, and I, and I, I hope I can say that with full confidence, every Chelsea fan out there was very excited to have a legend come back, to bring us back together. I mean, we just came up uh, Maurizio Sarri, who was a good manager in his own right, but never really seemed to get the Chelsea fans behind him to the level that maybe, you know, Gus Hiddink was able to do in his little time there, or even a Robbie Di Matteo, but Frank Lampard really did something different and ca almost calmed the nerves at Chelsea with transfer ban, like Alex alluded to, and Aiden Hazard leaving was a big one. And so to see him there and allow us or help us get over some of those fears and concerns was, I mean, it was a, just a special moment for all of us there. But what's next for a Frank Lampard, guys? He's been out now a year. He's been linked with a couple of jobs here and there. 
Last I heard, it was Everton. He's looking for the right system, looking for the right position. Rahul, your thoughts first, then we'll turn it over to Alex. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a managerial job, right? It's kind of what he's done uh, for the last few years. And, and I think he's waiting for an opportunity that uh, is at the level or close to where Chelsea were. Obviously, you, don't, you can't think that you're going to come back and, and compete for the top four. But I think he wants to be in and around the top six. Uh, Everton was an opportunity, but I think Everton internally have a lot of issues from, from the owner down. Uh, so personally, wouldn't have wanted to see him go there. Uh, but then that question comes up is there's never going to be a perfect club that he can just right. walk into. Uh, so at what point does he say, yeah, I'm going to take on this challenge and, and work work my way through it? Uh, I don't know what that challenge is. And I, at this point, it seems like it just it might just be better for him to wait until the summer and see some of the things that happen. I'm not saying people are going to get fired, but some of the things that happen uh, in the Premier League or in the Championship, too. I mean, I know he would prefer to be in the Premier League and, and that's right, rightly so, but championship may not be a bad opportunity for him to kind of rebuild and bring a club through. I know he spoke about uh, missing promotion with Derby County uh, with Gary Neville. Uh, so that's something that he could kind of take on and, and achieve and then move on into the Premier League and maybe uh, continue that, but definitely a job in and around in the, in the in top two tiers of English football and, uh, would love to see him back and, you know, we'll, we'll be supporting him and, and hoping for the best for him. Alex, do you think he needs to stay in the Premier League as a manager or are you okay with him maybe trying to rebuild in the championship? I think certainly he's proven um, with his stint with Derby County that he's, he's more than capable of being a, a quite good um, manager in the championship. I think it would be nice though to see him get another Premier League stint maybe at a club that doesn't quite have as high expectations as Chelsea, where um, if you're if you're not, you know, right in and competing and, and winning the vast majority of your games, there are going to be a lot of eyes on you. And I think we've seen too, obviously, some some positions where you appoint a, an ex-player, um, that's sort of become a trend almost recently. Sometimes that doesn't work out too well, um, but especially when these players who know the game super well, especially the ones who were who were classy players in their time the likes of frank lampard and i've got to say some other names uh those like steven gerrard who's been doing a fantastic job so far at aston villa um and then you have patrick vieira who's come in and put on a really strong showing i think with crystal palace overall taking in some lone players as well and i think that's what we saw too with lampard whether he's in the championship or in the premier league i could see him using that good relationship with chelsea as he did with derby county um, to get the next generation, the likes of the Mason Mounts, um, the Ficayo Tamoris, out of the Chelsea Academy to get some nice first team minutes, some good experience, and that could help both parties. So I would love to see him at a mid to lower level Premier League club um, where the main goal would be to maybe finish mid table or to avoid relegation, see what he's got. I think if a job there opens up, um, it, it would play well to his skill set because he had an entire career in the Premier League. Obviously, he's very experienced with that as a player. He's now experienced it as a manager. Um, but wherever he goes, I, I wish him the best of luck. And I think he is he is ready to take that next step, but there's no rush because um, he's still very young. He's still got plenty of time. Um, and I think there's no need to, to rush to a club that isn't going to be a good fit. He should wait till he has a board that has agreed to back him. Um, wait till he has a squad that he thinks he can do something with and then i'd love to see him hop back in absolutely you know 
Chelsea have come back to managers. We've come back to Jose Mourinho. We've come back to Gus Hiddink. Rahul, I'm not saying Thomas Tuchel is going anytime soon, but maybe in the future we'll come back to Frank Lampard. Your closing thoughts on Frank before we actually talk about Thomas Tuchel. No, look, we had a great time under him uh, a year ago. As, as I was telling you both, uh, we were disappointed. We were disheartened. Uh, obviously, a lot of things have gone our way and have helped fix those those uh, feelings that we've had. Yep. Lampard's always going to be a legend. He's always going to be de- uh, near and dear our hearts. Uh, and we're always going to wish that it had gone better than it did. But like you said, uh, and I read this on Twitter, so I can't take credit for it, but uh, it's every day that we have moved away from his firing is a day closer to him coming back. So I'll leave you guys with that. (laughs) That's a nice saying there. It's a hopeful saying. And I personally hope maybe in, you know, five, six, seven years, depending on how things go at Chelsea, he might be a man to come back and fill in those shoes. But let's jump into super Tommy Tuchel in this case. And what I want to talk about, Alex, about a year ago, we were discussing managers that could potentially come in and replace super Frank Lampard. And our very own Rahul on this podcast was very much against Tuchel. You actually were a little more level-headed and said it would be a decent managerial signing. So I'll let you talk first. Rahul has a minute to compose himself and defend his statements from a year ago. Yeah, well, I think as we've seen, Tuchel has seriously done a job since he's come in. Um, and you watched him get to the Champions League final uh, with Paris the year before he came. Um, I, I have to say one one other thing that I've been thinking of uh, on on a plus for Frank Lampard was his agreement to sign Tiago Silva, who I think has been exceptional. Um, that was one of the last things he did, I believe. And Silva came out and said Lampard's uh, faith that he placed in talking with him was a huge part of him coming to the yeah. club. And I think there isn't a single Chelsea fan right now uh, who doesn't absolutely love Tiago Silva and the passion he shows, the quality, the class he has. Um, And then you also have to give credit to Tuchel, who has worked with Tiago Silva in the past. Um, He and Tiago were able to get to the Champions League final, but fell a little bit short with PSG. And then um, the fact that he was able to come in and just stabilize the ship instantly, I think was really impressive. And, yeah, I, 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 I did. I don't remember exactly what my reaction was, but uh, from what you're telling me, I, I, I at least stayed somewhat level-headed. Um, but I think, I think it was, it was known that he had quality, um, and, and he at least had, he at least had a pedigree of managing top clubs. Um, and if you can handle the egos, for example, at a place like PSG, I yep. feel like maybe you can. You're, you're very well suited to handling the egos we have here at Chelsea. Um, and it proved to be a match made in heaven is, is what I can say so far. A match made in heaven. I'll leave it at that and defer to you, Rahul, to defend your points from a year ago. What I'm about to say, I should have said last year. I prefer not to speak. <laughs> uh, no, look, I obviously I, we've spoken about this off, uh, off recording and off air. And um, I had an opinion a year ago and, and, it was clearly one that uh, has changed, obviously, over the past uh, year. But it was simply down to, and I think Alex touched on it, he took PSG to the final. He did all of these great things with them. But ultimately, it was PSG. 
Right. He had Mbappe, he had Neymar. So those things were kind of expected. You kind of just know that you're going to win the title there unless you're Pochettino. Um, <laughs> but you you kind of know that these things are going to happen with PSG. And, and the ultimate thing was the Champions League, which is where he failed. Um, that along with my feelings about how Lampard was let go and not given enough time uh, led to me saying... I didn't want Tuchel here. In fact, I, I don't even think I said I wanted another manager. I think I said I prefer we we just kept Lampard. Yep. Uh, so that's kind of where that all came from. And and I have changed my mind and I have been proven wrong, which I'm glad to say uh, I'm happy to accept because a Champions League trophy uh, will shut up anyone, let alone me in Connecticut over here. But is it the Champions League trophy? And, I, and this is an open-ended question for both of you guys, and we'll get into stats in a minute. Is it the Champions League trophy, Rahul, for you specifically, that turned your mentality thinking Tuchel is a good coach? Or was there a key moment in time during his first part in that, in that second part of that season or a key game or something where you saw, okay, this guy can lead us to something good? Yeah, I mean, it, the Champions League, tro- Champions League trophy was like the the cherry on top, right? It right. was the the buildup from when he first came in on January 26th of last year. Uh, even from the training videos that we saw from the first session, the first game obviously ended in a draw. But it, at halftime, he had a conversation with Espelicueta where he said, if they go to a four, we're going to switch to this. Or if they do this, we're going to switch to that. And that was something that you almost didn't get or see previously i'm not saying lampard didn't do that but it was almost something that tuchel would, had already thought of ahead of time and, and was instructing his players uh so those kind of things along with just how respectful he was to the whole situation and he said i understand fans are upset it's up to me to kind of prove them that this is the right decision the board made uh and I think overall he's turned out to be a classy guy he's connected with the fans something you were touching on was Previously, when before Lampard came in, there was some disconnect. There was some uh, irritation towards the manager. And as soon as Tuchel came in and his communication style, his, his ability to motivate not just the players, but the fans too, and make us believe, uh, those things are what get you supporting a manager. And obviously, the results on the field add to that, trophies add to that. Uh, and now we're at a point where there were discussions about him being you know, let go or, or being close to being the next one out the door. And, and I said, I don't want him to go. So I've come a full circle here, but um, he's done the right things is what I'm trying to say. No, well said. I mean, that's a fair way to look at it. Alex, was it the Champions League final that made this a match in heaven for you? Or is it somewhere along the line, somewhere along the season, you saw something that said, this is the right guy for us? Well, I think as soon as he came in, as Rahul alluded to, he said the right things. Um, I was immediately struck by how really just brilliantly intelligent and witty he was in the press conferences before yeah. he even stepped foot on the pitch. Um, you could just tell this was an intelligent man. He thought things through. He knew what he was doing. He knew how he wanted to play. He knew what he was signing up for. He respected the history of the club. He respected the status of Frank Lampard. Um, just so he never seemed to put a foot wrong, um, at least in terms of his, uh, persona and what he said and how he talked to the press, uh, how he talked to the fans. And I think as, as Rahul said, he doesn't want Tuchel to leave. I think the vast majority of Chelsea fans, I would say all but an extraordinarily small population who I have not even seen 
uh, I have not seen anyone voice unironically a Tuchel out opinion because I think we all recognize his class as a manager and we believe that if we gave him the backing that say Pep Guardiola at City has gotten multiple yeah. years, plenty of financial support, time to build his system, build his team the way he wants. We've seen the pure class that Tuchel can pull off tactically. Um, we've seen him do immensely well with the team, just coming in halfway through the season, stabilizing the ship and immediately bringing us to the most prestigious trophy in, in club football. Um, I think every fan realizes the talent he has um, and, and every fan just loves him. And I've, I, this is strangely enough, I could almost say this is the most unified I've seen Chelsea fans loving a manager since Frank Lampard, his yeah. predecessor, which is, is, I think, even at the end when there were debates about should Frank be sacked, should he stay, I think everyone, or, or at least most self-respecting Chelsea fans, at, at the very least, uh, liked Frank as a person, liked his mentality, liked what he was trying to do, liked his history with the club. And I think Tuchel came right in and immediately won that respect as well. Um, so I don't know if it was the Champions League uh, victory in particular, but what I, what I really liked was when he said, we're going to build a team that nobody wants to play against. And I think that mindset is exactly, it, it was just music to Chelsea fans ears yeah. um, because really we just wanted to, to kickstart another, another golden generation in the sense we had Frank Lampard bringing these young players in. Um, we had the money for a rebuild. We had, we had the funds to purchase some new players and we were just looking to sort of turn that corner, uh, put on a fresh new page. And I think he came in, said the right things and he did turn Chelsea into a team that no one wants to play against. Even if we, uh, have our little stumbling periods, even if December still messes with us. Um, I don't think any team, any team goes out saying, I can't wait to play Chelsea. Um, and that is, that is a privilege that maybe some of our big six rivals do not have at this moment in time. So uh, I'm definitely grateful for what Tuchel's done. And I think he, he 100% is, is the right man for Chelsea. Yeah. And look, he deserves all that respect. He deserves all the praise that you guys have heaped upon him. I think, one key element I'm grabbing from both of the statements you guys have made, and, and maybe it's not the only thing, but his media presence or his communication around media presence and, and players is something that's particularly strong. And I'm not saying Frank Lampard didn't do a good job of it, but there are times in most managerial careers, we can think of Jose Mourinho, Antonio Conte, even AVB to some extent, where when quizzed or poked or prodded, their responses were almost comical because you could see them kind of having a crack or breaking a little bit. But Tuchel doesn't seem to break. He seems to handle every question very professionally, like you guys have said. Alex, your point about egos is good. We most recently dealt with the whole Lukaku saga. That seems to slowly be kind of creeping away. So that's all good news. Rahul, maybe you can jump into some of his key stats and share how successful he's been so far, even though we've gone through the December blips. Yeah, so a year on, we're looking at 67 games managed for Tuchel, uh, 43 in the Premier League, uh, five in the FA Cup, five in the Carabao Cup, 13 in the Champions League, and one in the Super Cup. Uh, adding all of those up and, and the wins, he's won about 43 games. Uh, there have been a few draws here in, in the Carabao Cup, but we're counting those as wins because ultimately we won the game. Uh, 15 draws in total, uh, real draws, and, and nine losses. So Nine losses in a year uh, is, is a pretty good achievement given that uh, he came in, had a squad that he inherited and, and didn't really add to. Added one player in the summer and has continued 
to get results, dealt with injuries, dealt with COVID. So you have to tip your hat to him. Uh, when things have gotten tough, he's still gotten results. And that's what I think was lacking last December, January, was even though we were winning games, we were then going and losing them. There was no in-between. Uh, and in this case, there is an in-between. And, and now we're saying that in-between is happening a lot, a lot more than it should. But uh, we will get to where we need to be. We just got to trust him and give him the backing, like Alex was saying, like you've been saying. And uh, hopefully the win, win percentage of 64.2, which is pretty high uh, compared to some of the other managers, and we can run through that here in a second, uh, can get better over the next couple of years and, and add more trophies. You know, given that December blip, you, you sit down and you look at it and you wonder how many games we've lost, but nine losses in, in a year, Alex. I mean, that's, that's a pretty solid record for a manager. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, it's impressive too, how, how some of these, some of these games that he, that maybe we don't get the result as well. We can pinpoint and, and people seem to realize like, okay, well, we saw what we were trying to do. This came down to a lack of finishing or um, poor chance creation today or defensive mistakes. We, right. We've definitely, we had a little run where um, there were a couple little blips, a few errors. We had Jorginho giving up a couple accidental goals with errors in behind. Um, we then had Mendy have a couple very uncharacteristic and, and sort of freak errors himself um, that cost us some points. And, and these are players who have been very consistent. Obviously, both Jorginho and Mendy have been recognized by award ceremonies in addition to Chelsea fans for outstand, an outstanding year overall. Um, but, uh, you know, the, a, lot of these, a lot of these issues where Chelsea fell short, don't, I personally just don't really put the blame on the manager. Now, I think absolutely he's going to continue to learn. He should continue to learn from some mistakes. He's some, absolutely sometimes been outwitted tactically um, by, by good coaching on the other, other side. But I think overwhelmingly every game we go into, we can see what he's trying to do. Um, we can see him inspiring the players. We can see him trying to make adjustments mid game. We can see him wanting to play in a certain way. Um, and a lot of the time when things don't go quite as well as we'd like, we can look and say, well, you know what? We had eight players out with COVID who could have started for us and we didn't get our game postponed like some other clubs did, or we had, all of our preferred attackers injured and we're stuck with five, nine Polisic up top against a bunch of six, three center backs. Right. Um, and he was just devoid of service. So I think there have been a lot of situations where, you know, even when the results aren't great, you could sort of look and say, Hey, if, if Tuchel had a, a fully fit squad or if Lukaku in, in maybe a couple of recent examples had finished this chance or if Jorginho hadn't slipped in midfield and let Jaden Sancho run in and get an easy 1v1 goal, or if Mendy hadn't uh, accidentally palmed the ball into his own net, we could have come away with even more points there. So I think just the, the class and quality of Tuchel with the squad that he's got already has shown great results. And yet I feel like every Chelsea fan knows we could, we could be doing even better. There is more uh, to get to. I think we all want a couple more transfers of, of Tuchel's choice. I think we all want a little more consistency. We want some better injury and COVID luck. I mean, you can't overstate the impact of, of Reese James and Ben Chilwell who were in world-class form at the beginning of the year, suddenly both with season ending injuries and Thomas Tuchel is now left playing wingers at wingback um, because frankly, we just don't have great depth in those positions. So 
a lot of, I think he's done really well overall. And a lot of the times we've fallen short, you can point fingers at a lot of people and he's pretty far down that list because he's doing really well with what he has. No, nicely said. I mean, you've talked a lot about some of the other issues around Chelsea that don't necessarily affect Thomas Tuchel himself, but nonetheless, he's managed really, really well, got so many wins in that situation. Raul, you alluded to other managers, their win percentage. Maybe we can do a little bit of comparison and see where he ranks in amongst those names. Yeah, so Jose Mourinho's first in uh, 185 games, a win percentage of 67%. Um, looking here, uh, Carlo Ancelotti, another great manager that we had, 109 games, 61%. Uh, Rafa Benitez, who came in in between, 58%. Uh, Jose Mourinho coming back for the second time, 59%. Antonio Conte, uh, 65%. So he's up there. Uh, and most recently, Sarri had 62% and Lampard had 52%. So Tuchel's right in and around uh, some of the greats that we've had. And he's only been here a year. So um, the more time we give him, again, it comes back to giving him time, giving him the backing, giving him the players, uh, and let him work his magic. And And I think what Alex was saying was, was spot on with if yeah. we give this guy the backing, he could turn us into what Guardiola has turned into Man City, which is they know exactly how they have to play week in, week out, what they have to do. And I think even after he's left, Pep's left, that that characteristic or that identity of the team is going to stay with them for a long, long time. Yeah, and I have an open-ended question. And Alex, maybe we can start with you. Some of the win rate percentages Raul has highlighted here Notably, Jose Mourinho, Antonio Conte, even Mauricio Sarri. We're in the 65, 67 percentile win range. And obviously, that wasn't even enough to keep them long enough. And I think this is my opinion. I think one of the key moments which I've highlighted is eventually they all saw cracks. Eventually, they started bad-mouthing the Chelsea board or bad-mouthing their players or kind of showing that this isn't working anymore. And then they were eventually fall, pushed out of the club. With Tuchel so far, he's managed to keep a lid on things. He's managed to keep himself very professional. Given that his win rate is this good or this successful, and if he can keep doing what he's doing as far as media personality, as far as keeping a bottle in some of the Lukaku-ish incidents, maybe he can form that regime that you guys are alluding to over here. Alex, maybe you can start on that question. There. Yeah, I, I think, as you said, his his management to some of these issues has been impressive. And unlike some managers we've seen in the past, he hasn't been showing those sort of slip ups. Um, this this Lukaku drama most recently, he handled extremely well. Um, and obviously, like the fans are still yet to fully win, win back, I guess, or gain back their affection for Lukaku. But <laughs> Tuchel put him right back out sat him for a game and then put him right back out on the pitch and said, all right, now go and score goals. That's your job. Um, I think everything he's done, he's, he's handled very well. And I mean, he's been working with COVID absolutely obliterating uh, large numbers of our squad at crucial times. He's been dealing with injuries to some of our most absolutely key players in the system Tuka wants to play. He's had some very inconsistent forwards, um, obviously we had finishing issues before Lukaku and then Lukaku's had some bursts of good form, but then also had a few issues himself. Um, but as you said, it's, it's, it's also always comes down to the relations between the manager, uh, the board, the fans, the players, and Tuchel has just handled everything very professionally. He's gotten wins. 
He's obviously won us a massive trophy. He's won us several trophies. He's going to have the opportunity to add to that soon with the Club World Cup. Um, I mean, this is just, for me, this could very well be, and I I don't want to get ahead of myself because there's so much that can go wrong. Um, but I think this could very well be the starting of a dynasty, so to speak. And I think that's almost what with Frank Lampard, um, that was maybe the, the wishful thinking of everyone because yeah. you saw the club legend come back. The fans were behind him. Um, the players were breaking through. The young players loved him. He was getting some initial results. The games were exciting. But over time, it was just clear that he didn't quite maybe have that, that experience at the top level tactically um, handling all of the pressures of that job and maybe what we wanted to be the foundation of an empire. He wasn't quite fit to, to construct that, that continued success. Um, and I think Tuchel, in Tuchel, we have a manager who's not only friendly with the fans, not only popular with the board, not only popular with the players, but also extremely tactically adept. Um, he's shown recently to a lot more versatility, which has been forced by the injury and COVID crises of changing up positions, changing up formations um, and finding a way to get some key results. So, I mean, I, I feel like we've, we've all said it so many times by now, but you've got to back super Tommy Tuchel because I think he is the real deal. Um, and I think if you, if you give him the sort of backing, as we've said that Pep got at city, um, I mean, Pep's turned the Premier League for, as, as people have joked, into a farmer's league, so to speak, for the past few seasons with just how high, how incredibly high he set the bar. And Tuchel is the kind of coach with just the, the sort of tough love mentality, the intensity, the tactical knowledge and the eloquence um, who could just set that very same bar for Chelsea, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, look, you've covered a lot of key moments there. Rahul, I'll say one thing to help you kind of add or maybe wrap up this segment even one Champions League in the bag, one Super Cup in the bag. Alex alluded to potentially an FA Cup, potentially a Carabao Cup, potentially Club World Cup. Where does Tuchel go from here? The, the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we haven't won the Premier League since 2017. So yep. I think the answer to your first question, and I think Alex answered it perfectly, but the answer to yep. that question is, the board is going to be happy and, and satisfied as long as trophies are coming in. But ultimately, the Premier League is what the club wants, right? We haven't won it since 2017. Man City are most likely going to overtake us this season in, in the Premier League wins that, uh, at least in the Premier League era. And so I think for the board, it's, it's all coming down to, okay, we won the Champions League. Premier League is what we really want. And if it's on the Premier League, then it's the top four. And if it's on the top four, then it doesn't matter what your win percentage is. They're going to make a decision. Um, and they're not going to be like, well, we didn't back him. I, I don't think they care. Yeah. Uh, so it really comes down to results on the field and the league. And, and yes, he can win a Carabao Cup, which it will be great. We'll celebrate it. But I think ultimately it's down to the league. And, and um, that's that's kind of that that in itself is what holds the key to building this dynasty or, or the regime that we're talking about is where we finish this season. Cause I think the title's out of the reach and what we do next season, if next season doesn't start off where we think, or the board thinks it should be, there's going to be a decision made. And, and I'm not saying that I want that decision. I'm not saying that that's what I'll be deciding, but we know this board, we know the owner, they do everything in the best interest of the club. And we just have to look back a year and see how that this past year has been. 
yeah, look, you guys have done a good job of summarizing, but also putting out the truth that can happen if things don't go the way of Chelsea's side. But look, Thomas Tuchel is here a year. It's been a full year, at least tomorrow. We're releasing this episode a day before. It's been a successful year, in our opinion, based on everything you guys have summarized. And hopefully many more to come, hopefully a Premier League in the future. But before we even get to that, hopefully a couple more trophies this season. But I think that wraps up a lot on Thomas Tuchel, guys. We'll talk about him a bit more as we progress. But let's jump into the Spurs review, which is another fiery episode to talk about. Uh, We've played them four times this season so far, and most recently in quick succession in the Carabao Cup to knock them out. Rahul, why don't you take us through the Premier League starting eleven? Yeah, so like you said, this was the third game this month in the last two weeks, and uh, Tuchel puts out Kepa in goal, uh, since Mendy's still at the uh, AFCON. Uh, Aspilicueta at right back, Rudiger, Thiago Silva, center backs, and Malang Sar back in as the left back because we played a back four. Uh, but this time around, instead of going a 4-2-2-2, he goes a 4-3-3. At least that's what it says um, in the official lineup. And, and we can discuss if if it was that. But it's Mount, Jorginho, and Kovacic as the three uh, midfielders with Hakim Ziyech and Hudson Odoi actually in their wing winger position. Uh, and Lukaku as the main striker. Alex, I'm chuckling here because news media outlets say it's 4-3-3. Some say it's 4 2 2 2. Some say it's 4 2 3 1. Some even claim it's three at the back. I, I don't know what we're seeing. It's very, very fluid, very hybrid. What are your thoughts on? I mean, you've covered a little bit about Tuchel's ability to change things. What are your thoughts on the formation for this particular game? I think, um, I mean, as you said, it's, it's, it's impossible really to pin it down fully because it's also dynamic during the game. I think it's just a sign of a good team. Um, that you can keep people guessing a little bit, that your players are comfortable uh, playing in different ways if you ask them to. And whatever he did, um, whether you call it a back three, back four, uh, four, one, four, one, I've seen it called a couple times. Yeah. It's, how, however, it, however it works out on paper, I think the, just, the key is fluidity on the pitch. And you know, you can try to you can try to put numbers and, and assign names to the formations and the positions all you want. But what's important is that every player goes out and knows their role and performs well. And I think as we saw, especially in that second half, um, everyone did really know what they were doing. Uh, the players, the players put in a shift and it was just a, a well formulated, well executed game by both the manager um, and the players with with. Uh, a few maybe exceptions, but I think overall, uh, most of the players came out and, and performed quite well overall. And and it was just the definition of a well-executed game plan. Now, what that game plan was exactly, I guess is as good as mine. But, you know, if, if, if we're winning and the players are scoring and Tuchel's happy, I'm happy. Rahul, for the sake of discussion, let's assume it's a 4-3-3. We've had a golden generation in the 3-4-3 with Antonio Conte and, of course, Tuchel bringing that formation in. But we've also had a very successful generation with a 4-3-3 under Jose Mourinho in the early days that won us a lot of trophies. Do you like the 4-3-3? What are some benefits you saw out of this particular formation? Yeah, I liked it. It was good to see a switch, and it was good to see a switch that wasn't just it's a back three or it's a 4-2-2-2. Uh, Tuchel is showing that he's flexible, and yes, it may be down to COVID and injuries, but he's flexible and, and has the 
the ability to get his players to perform in different systems, which keeps oppositions guessing, and in this case, kept Antonio Conte guessing, and, and in fact, forced him to make a change to his own formation, which we'll come to in a second. Uh, but yeah, I, I preferred it, and I think it almost allowed the wingers, like I mentioned, to play as actual wingers versus what happens in the 4-3-3 is they, they are a little bit closer to Lukaku or whoever the striker is, and they don't get the ability to to play as the wide men. Um, and since they were wide, it was allowing Mason Mount, Kovacic to come in between and kind of become a five-man attack with Ziyech, Mount, Lukaku, Kovacic, Hudson, Adoy. Uh, and that was really overwhelming um, Spurs and, and their defense and their midfield. And if eventually they had to have two guys fall deeper and essentially be a back six. Uh, so this was all done with the intention, and again, credit to Tuchel, to force Tottenham back and, and take advantage of the energy Mount and Kovacic bring to drive up and back, up and back, up and back, and allow the wingers to be actual wingers versus inverted wingers, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and look, I know we want to talk about the Tottenham formation, so maybe we'll start there for a second and we'll come back to the wingers point, but... Really quickly, you know, Antonio Conte, who is the master of the back three, who has been playing that, who had a golden generation with Chelsea winning the Premier League, switches to a back four to accommodate just for what you're talking about. And I'll run through his, his back four and his 4-4-2-ish formation that he played. But Ben Davies on the left, Sanchez, Dyer in the middle, Tanganga on the right, who was torn apart that entire game. You've got Sesson Young on the left, Hoiberg and Winks holding the middle, Matt Doherty playing right wing, and then... Serge Bergwijn and Harry Kane leading the line. So, and of course, Hugo Lloris in goal. But I want to come back to the wingers and talk about one guy in particular, Alex, that's Hakim Ziyech. He has had a start-stop, maybe a torrid time, maybe not seeing the best of him at Chelsea, but whether this is a 4-3-3 or whatever fluid formation that you've called it, he was hugging that touchline very, very, very closely, similar to his, Alex, to his Ajax days. And it's almost like we saw a new Hakim Ziyech where he was able to feel free, make runs, pinging in balls with his left foot all that entire first half. Do you think that suits him to be hugging the touchline more than almost playing as an inverted winger? Yeah, I think 100%, as you said, it, it was, I mean, that was the Ajax Ziyech from, from, from everything uh, we saw his delivery was outstanding. I mean, he was fizzing wow. balls in with the left that multiple of which should have been finished. Um, but uh, the way he took the goal was just straight out of the archives. This was really like th- th- that game was like a one game highlight reel of the player. We <laughs> thought we were getting when we signed him. We hoped he would be when we signed him. And if he can, if he can keep that kind of performance up with that, uh, as you've said, that freedom uh, to move, to make runs, to cut inside, to to find space for his left foot, uh, to open up for passes, for shots. Um, I mean, he almost had another beautiful goal as well. Right after the one he took, he yeah. absolutely blasted another shot with his left that was well saved by Lloris. I mean, this was this was a a clinic that he put on, and I think it, it was it was a long time coming, but it, it was maybe a little overdue in terms of. Uh, how long it took him to sort of find this. But as we've said, maybe that's also uh, down to that sort of tactical freedom that he was given this game and it worked out really well. So, I mean, all I can say is if whatever we fed him before that game, let's do it again. Um, And and Tuchel now, I'm sure uh, 
he's, I would say his, his football IQ is probably a little above mine. So if I'm sitting here and thinking we need to try to replicate that performance from Ziek, I'm sure Tuchel's already uh, had many thoughts about how he can sort of get that kind of uh, consistent performance from Hakeem um, and use those skills as we saw so well on display uh, game in game out. Rahul, one of the things we talked about obviously before the game was Hakim Ziyech has not necessarily had the finest of moments in a Chelsea shirt. And we keep wondering why Tuchel's persisting with him. But when he plays him in this formation and when he's hugging that touchline, when he has that space to look up and zing a Sesk Fabregas ball across the pitch with, I mean, with ease, the wave of the magic wizard wand, you got to wonder that Tuchel is starting him for those reasons, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's now this was a third consecutive game that he started him. And of course, City wasn't good. Brighton, he gets a goal. This game was the best out of the three. And it almost comes back to the point that I think you and I were discussing a few episodes ago was we need some consistency in the attack. (laughs) And he was giving us a consistent attack, at least with Lukaku and Ziyech. And we were saying, well, why is Ziyech playing? Because he's not performing. But he continued to play him. And in this game, we saw, like you both have said, the best of Ziyech. And and it wasn't just the ability to stay out wide, but it was also the ability to cut back in because he had runners, Mason Mount, Espliqueta, dragging players away, which was giving him the freedom to bring it back on his left foot and, and ping those balls wherever he wanted. And, and that's really how that goal comes to. But yeah, it was... And it wasn't just everything he did, he did in attack. He was also helping out defensively, putting in tackles yeah. or at least closing down players. And I think the key thing for me was Tuchel's been playing him and, and giving him the, the confidence or the time to, to do what he did in this game. But when he subs him off later in that second half, Tuchel gives him a pat on the back, a hug, call it whatever you want. And, and that was the key was he was like, this is why I have been playing you and you've proven me right and you've done everything. And, and you're the guy now kind of giving him that little ego boost, yep. which should come in handy for the next a few months of the season. It absolutely should, but we're going to talk more about Hakim Ziyech in that second half. Staying on this 4-3-3, I think one more player that had a good time was actually Callum Hudson-Odoi in his more natural wing position. And I, as I alluded to earlier, I think he gave Tanganga a horrid time, you know, challenging him, going to him, almost baiting him into getting fouls, which was good to see that it's kind of affecting more than just Hakim Ziyech in this game. It's, it's alluding to some of the strengths that we have today because of injuries, because of the way we're playing. And again, it it comes back to both of the things that you guys are saying, specifically Alex around the IQ that Tuchel has, the footballing IQ to now realize who his players are that are available and how to get the best out of them. But we had a lot of chances, a lot of movement, a lot of possession. We dominated that game, not too much to show for it. And while we're on the front foot, something interesting happens. And Rahul, I'll stick with you to walk us through this, Harry Kane moment, and maybe you can describe what happened and, and how it played out. Yeah, so it's really down to a, a counter, maybe you can call it, from Spurs. Uh, they get the ball down our right-hand side, uh, put in a cross towards uh, Harry Kane, who is running with Silva. Silva's kind of ahead of him. The ball is behind Silva, directly into Harry Kane's path. And Harry Kane tends to push Silva a little bit of shove to get him out of the way. Silva goes down. Uh, Harry Kane then gets the touch, gets it out of his foot into the goal, 1-0. Uh, 
but the referee calls it back and says, no, it was a foul on Silva. VAR uh, says, yes, we agree. And you see me smiling because usually we're complaining about VAR. In this case, once again, uh, we're, we're satisfied with the decision. But the question came up was, does Silva go down too easily? Or is it really at, at a high speed kind of running, running towards away from the ball or, or towards goal? Uh, a little bit of touch is enough to, to put someone off their, their stance and, and, and throw them off balance. I'll defer this one to Alex. Alex, what are your thoughts on Rahul's question around if Thiago Silva goes down easily or if it's just a high-speed collision and he has to go down? I would say certainly at first when I saw it, I, I thought the goal was going to stand and I said, well, that, that stinks. Um, I think then having seen it on the replay, I then thought, okay, that's probably going to be called back, but I was also thinking, you know, did we get a little lucky there? Did we get away with one? I mean, you could always see that a couple ways for sure. Uh, as you guys have said, though, I think the more, the more I sort of looked at it, the more I realized when you're running at full speed, I mean, certainly I think, I think Tiago Silva justifiably went down. Now, whether that was enough to overturn the goal, um, I, 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 I don't know. Um, but I think Tiago Silva, when you're, when you're running at full speed, you're trying to sort of slow yourself down, get back to cover a ball that's coming across. If someone puts their hand in your back, even if it's light, I think anyone who's played the game and knows the speed of the game knows that that's, it doesn't take much to, to bring someone down. And I think Kane does know what he's doing. And the key for me um, that I, I could see that being, you know, I, I could understand Spurs fans say, saying that's a bit harsh. Um, but for me, the issue is, as, as you guys have mentioned, um, Tiago Silva was already past the ball. The cut cross came as a cutback. It had already pretty much beaten Silva. He wasn't going to be getting to it. Uh, even without the push in the back, his momentum was taking him away from the ball. Um, and I think maybe as, a, as an instinct of sorts, I think just the fact that Kane had his arm outstretched and, and clearly made a pushing motion, even if the contact was minimal, um, even if it wasn't the hardest push ever, or if maybe Silva could have stayed on his feet, which I'm not sure of. Um, I think just the fact that Kane so clearly pushed out his hand in an outstretched motion and clearly planted it in Silva's back, I, I think that's the right call from VAR. Um, now you could argue maybe maybe that's it was a little soft and going forward you need to be more clear about instances like that. But I mean, frankly, for me, if you don't want to get called for a push, don't have your hand in the small of, of the defender's back. Um, because as I've said, the ball was already coming straight to Kane's feet. Um, and it wasn't like a holding off Silva with the, the elbow bent. It was like a stiff arm in the back. And I think even if the contact itself was minimal, the fact that he was clearly trying to make a push just kind of eliminates too, too many complaints on, on, on the Spurs end. So yeah, I mean, maybe did we get a little lucky? Does another ref maybe not not call that as a foul? Sure, um, but I don't. I think at the same time, if you're Kane, you can't feel. I mean, you can't feel too hard done by when you just clearly planted an arm in the back. So, yeah, uh, that was a a nervy moment, but but we got through it. And I think, yeah, I think he I think he could have scored if he hadn't pushed Silva, and that obviously would have stood. So, um, could have gone very differently. Yeah, look, and I appreciate you taking a neutral-ish position on this, trying to look at it from both scenarios. 
One thing I will add from my perspective is I think we sometimes overlook the experience that Thiago Silva has when playing a match. And I think just like you alluded, Alex, he was past the ball. It was a cutback. And deep down, Thiago Silva thinks it's a goal. I felt this touch in my back. If I go down, I can do everything in my power to say I was impeded. And, and rightly or wrongly, so I, I don't know. You know, on one day it can be a penalty, on another day it can't be. But I think that's the beauty of having somebody who's been there, done that in big moments. They use these things to their advantage. Is it necessarily fair from a Spurs fan? I'm probably sitting in the corner cussing us out on this podcast. But if I'm a Chelsea fan, I think I have to look at it from Thiago Silva's experience level saying, let me go down and let's see what happens. Because I did get the hand in the back. I'm not diving, but it helps solidify the referee's decision at that point in time. So, Raul, I hope that answers your question. I mean, it was a nervy moment for all of us. So we get away with that one. And I think it's four or five now in the couple of games with VAR coming to our rescue. So I'm going to try and bite my tongue on my negativity towards VAR for the next few episodes here and allow them to keep doing what they're doing. But that really takes us into the second half. I'm going to pause here, Rahul, and maybe you can express your emotion behind what I think is the best Chelsea goal so far this season. It has to be. It's in ZX's word, it was, words, it was 10 out of 10. And, and you can't really argue. I would say it was 11, 12, 15 out of 10. Um, <laughs> and he has that ability. We've seen it. He yeah. scored a, not a similar, but a, that caliber of a goal against us when he played for Ajax. Um, and so I'm not taking anything away from that goal, but I, I do want to point out the run from Espelicueta and Mason Mount, which drag two players away and allow Ziyech to bring it back to his left and then bend it. Of course, the the ability, the talent, all of that is, is in Ziyech and in his, in his foot, so you can't take that away from him. But uh, like to point out the the work of some of his teammates and and it, it was going to take something like that to, to get this started, this game started in that favor. Um, oh, and if he can do that every one or two games, three games, four games, a month even, um, we'll take it because those goals are that – was, that was a sweet goal. Alex, goal of the season contender for you? Certainly it has to be up there. I mean, I think we have scored some, we have scored some great ones um, earlier in the season too. We scored some nice ones. And I think uh, I do, I do still like that Kovacic uh, goal on the volley yeah. against Liverpool um, that went off the post and in that one's right up there for me too. Um, so I might give that one the edge, but it, you know, you can, you've always got to just step back and appreciate the beauty of a, a perfect curler, um, especially just a, a gorgeous left footed shot that was trademark, uh, from the Moroccan wizard. So I think that was, I mean, as I've said, that's exactly what we signed him for. Uh, and he came up with the goods. He does indeed. And I want to move on to Tiago Silva's moment here, Alex. We'll stick with you. Comes in clutch again. I mean, he's been doing it all of last season, tripping in with goals. And now he continues again this season with the header against Tottenham. Yeah, he's he's just so good. And you see um, uh, John Terry was was mentioning, tweeting during the game, like, oh, Tiago Silva, what a, what a classy player. He's, he's always full of praise for Tiago. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it's very clear John Terry wishes <laughs> he had the likes of Tiago Silva partnering him at the back for some of those Chelsea years because, well, I mean, just there's, there, there are no words. Pure class, aging like fine wine. I mean, you wouldn't guess he's, he's what, 37 years old yeah. at this point? And, and, but it's, it's like every bit of 
every bit of class, maturity, experience, leadership, um, and skill, minus the usual things you have of, of, of a player maybe slowing down, being a little off the pace, or even if he is, even if he is maybe not quite as, as physically capable, he's the, the mental side to his game is so developed. And you often yeah. see that with veteran center backs, where even though they've maybe lost a step or two of pace, their reading of the game is just so fantastic. Uh, and their understanding of it, uh, of, of just situational awareness, where to be, how to stop a chance, how to create a goal scoring chance, as we saw here, uh, it's just impeccable. And um, we're so lucky to have him. So uh, very lucky. I think I saw someone tweeting a thank you to PSG for giving up the <laughs> duo of Thomas Tuchel and Tiago Silva, both of whom have been just immense uh, since coming in. They have indeed. 37, he signed for one more season, Rahul, and his wife is a, apparently a Tottenham hater as well, right? <laughs> she is, she is, and, and and I think that's the sentiment that's shared in the Silva household yeah. because that was the second goal against them this season. Um, but no, beautiful, beautiful goal, beautiful player, and uh, I think there were some doubts when he first signed because we were like, what are we doing bringing in of course, with the age, but he's proven everyone wrong. And, and he didn't have the best start. If you think back to that West Brom game, uh, he started off with a mistake, but since then he's, he's proven that he, it was the right decision. And, and he has a lot more to offer uh, to the squad. If it's a back three, a back four, a back one, he, he can do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's talk a little bit about Lukaku guys. Rahul, Lukaku doesn't get on the score sheet. But does he have much to complain about for this particular game? He doesn't. And and I think it's clear now, at least with the last game and, and last couple of games, the service is going into him. We've, we've been asking for it to go in faster. We've been saying transition play has been slower. Wasn't the case this time around. And, and it ultimately, of course, you, you don't score in every game and, and that's fine. Uh, but ultimately, it's down to Lukaku and how he comes out of this. I think his last goal was against Brighton at the end of December. Um, so he's probably, he's going to go a whole month without a goal. And, and that's not good enough for a player that we brought in to score the goal. So um, it's up to him. He's got another four months of this season to prove to himself more than anyone that he belongs at this level because he's had... Manchester United stint at the, in the Premier League. He's had everything. He has West Brom. Of course, he did great at Inter, but the Premier League is the best in the world, and, and you got to prove to the world and to yourself that you can do it. Maybe not in his mind. Maybe Serie A is the best and Inter is the best, but um, I think he owes it to himself to to fulfill the dream that he's had, which is to to do it in the Premier League. A little jab there at Lukaku. And Alex, you said earlier, not all Chelsea fans are forgiven Lukaku. Clearly, <laughs> Rahul's still on the fence there. But do you echo his sentiments? Do you think now Lukaku needs to take these chances that are coming his way or use the service? Because those were the things he, he seemed to allude to complain about. And we're changing our style or changing our pace to kind of get him the service he needs. I think certainly he needs to he needs to step it up and, and start bagging goals. But at the same time, I've I've sort of increasingly come come to realize in in recent i don't know maybe recent games months seasons that on the one hand you do want your players scoring so we need to get lukaku scoring but at the same time when a player doesn't get on the score sheet they don't get an assist maybe the stats sheet doesn't say they did too well but you still come away with a nice victory um i can't have too many complaints now the issue is 
we haven't been consistently winning a lot of our winnable games. True. So when Lukaku maybe misses a chance, nobody else is there to step up. Now, you know, you could say, hey, this game, maybe he wasn't at his very best, but he at least occupied the Spurs defense to the point that it allowed the likes of Ziek to have some space, hit a beautiful curling effort. Um, I, I think we absolutely need to get him scoring, um, but I think we just need to get winning games because I don't want us to be in a position where we're altering our whole system to try to get him a few more chances or feed Lukaku. I think to a certain point, Tuchel needs to have an idea of how to approach a game tactically, and Lukaku has to either fit that mold or not fit it because we do have two other talented players, um, two, two Germans sitting on our bench in Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, um, who we know, even if they haven't, like all of our attackers, been particularly consistent of late, um, we know they have certain skill sets that can help the team. So I think Lukaku needs to step up and make use of his chances. Um, he needs to at least contribute well to team wins. And maybe that's, maybe that's holding up the defense. Maybe that's creating space. Um, and other players take the spotlight. That's okay with me. But he can't be a liability. Um, and if Lukaku doesn't get firing, I think you say, okay, Kai Havertz, this is your time to shine. Uh, show us, you know, that, that link up that interplay that we've seen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ultimately like freaking out because we do have good depth, even if none of our players are really showing that they have taken hold of a starting spot by the scruff of the neck and should start every week. We do have good options. Um, so I think that's, I mean, as you guys have said, just proving to Lukaku just as much as anyone, he needs to step things up a little bit. And if he doesn't, um, we, we do have other options. 100 million player, yes. We want to get him scoring, yes. But Chelsea cannot afford to sit around and uh, fail to win winnable games if Lukaku's not helping us out. So hopefully, hopefully he gets his confidence up, gets a few good goals, um, and starts firing again. And for our listeners, you've heard it here first. Strong words from both Rahul and Alex. And so Lukaku, if by some chance you're listening, they're not against you. We support you, but we're looking for a little bit more out of you is what I'm gathering today. So another play we need to cover, Rahul, Malang Sar, pretty decent and left back, I would say. Oh, yeah, he's he's turning into a left back that we didn't know we had in the squad. And, and, <laughs> and that's good because he um, is filling a gap that we I don't think are going to fill in this transfer window. So uh, he's giving Tuchel that option and, and he's done well. I guess it was all against Spurs and, and maybe it's just his um, feelings towards him that he steps it up, but he's, he's doing good. And, and you got to give him credit that uh, he's taking advantage of the chance that he got. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, we got to talk about Christian Pulisic. Do you think he deserves some minutes in this game? Maybe come on earlier. He could have shown what he has to offer. I think he, he certainly could have, um, but you know, I really just want to see him in that natural position of his. I want to see him getting some time in attacking positions. I don't want to force him on if he's going to be a wingback sub. I don't want to force him to play as a center forward for no reason. And Pulisic is now um, currently on an international break where presumably he's going to get a lot of minutes. The U.S. have three big games coming up. Um, and I think we don't need to force Pulisic into the lineup, but he needs to get chances because uh, certainly Ziek, I would say, if you're trying to go based on merit, he certainly deserves uh, some 
continued selection, see if he can continue that form he's had. Um, but Pulisic has had some some impressive games at left wing and then instantly been been shuttered away uh, to either wing back or dropped the next game to the bench. Um, I think he deserves a, a bit of a run like Ziyech has gotten in a few recent games in an attacking position to see what he can do. Um, but for now, it's going to be focus on the on the U.S. games, World Cup qualifying. And then when he comes back, hopefully he puts in some good performances there maybe raises Tuchel's eyebrows in that, in that sense. And hopefully he comes back ready to fire because I think especially um, given sort of the, the tactical fluidity we're sort of trying to play with at this point, he complements the skill sets of our other players quite well. And I still think a Polisic Lukaku Ziek attack, um, especially as we saw in this, this most recent game with Mason Mount playing a little more in behind, I think could be really, something interesting because then you've got Mason Mount's ability to drive forward and shoot from the middle. You have ZX ability to cut in and use a brilliant left foot from the right. You have Polisic's pace to get in behind his dribbling and his link up on the left. And then regardless of who you have up top, but especially if you put someone like Lukaku up top uh, to hold up the ball, to finish hopefully ruthlessly the chances we get and to be a physical presence I mean, to me, that's that's a scary attack to be going against. So I I do want to see Pulisic get some runs in because I think he's got some 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 magic in those boots, uh, but he's going to need consistent minutes to show it. Yeah, I'm excited at the prospect of that. Those players you mentioned linking up, it gives me vibes of 2004 with Damian Duff, Joe Cole, Aryan Robin, Didier Drogba, Frank Lampard himself, all linking up in a similar-ish formation, but. I'm hoping, I'm praying that we can see more efficient Pulisic down that left. There's a lot of competition, but hopefully he can get in. But guys, before we wrap up the Tottenham game, just a quick word on the scummy-ish Tottenham fans throwing their lighters coming from the stands to maybe injure Rudiger because they kind of have a second-degree club with no class. But Rahul, I get your thoughts on that one. I'm laughing because of what you're saying, but this was no laughing matter. It was, no, not at all. Yeah, it was honestly disgusting to see. Um, no matter what is happening on the pitch, you've got to maintain some level of class, like you were saying, and and throwing lighters, throwing things. I mean, it wasn't just this game. We saw it in another game yeah. too, but sticking to this game. Um, yes, you can be frustrated, but you've got to realize that these guys are human beings. At the end of the day, they're playing a sport. They're doing a job. Uh, and if your team isn't doing the job, focus your frustration there instead of the opposition. Uh, and and one thing that bothered me was when those lighters were coming on and Rudiger is kind of telling the referee or, or trying to get his attention. Um, Steven Bergwijn is like, well, come on, let's just, let's just play and then get this going. And it's like, no, that that's the kind of behavior that, that suggests to the fans that it's okay. And it's, and it's not. So um Hopefully Premier League and, and Chelsea identify who these guys are and, and they're punished. And I think it's it's most likely going to come down to a stadium ban. And um, maybe that will be better for the Spurs fan because they barely win at Stamford Bridge anyway. <laughs> Look, and you know, one of the pundits said it, said it best. It's like, what other profession in the world do you sit at where things are chucked at your head and you continue to get on with the game? It doesn't really make sense. But Alex, you just got back from a European tour. You got to see a lot of wonderful stadiums. But we've seen stadiums in Europe where they've basically put cages up to stop people from throwing things in. And I think, in my opinion, that ruins a little bit of the, the beauty or the magic of the game when you have to watch it from behind a cage or a fence. And we don't want that, but what can be done to stop 
for lack of better word, idiots from throwing things onto the pitch? It's it's a tough one, um, though I think just deterring and, and, and showing that the actions are not okay is key, as as you guys have mentioned. But the good news, I, I, I'd seen this headline and I just looked it up to confirm it. Um, it, it does look like two people were actually arrested after that incident. Um, so I think, I think just making that the precedent is the key because I agree with you. Um, we don't want to have to watch it from behind barriers and behind fences. There's, there's something extremely magical about having, especially at, at, at a stadium like Stamford bridge where the stands are pleasantly close to the pitch, um, yeah. as opposed to some of the maybe more modern stadiums where it's a little further, um, you get like an incredible vibe with the fans. You get a great, not, not just the atmosphere, but just the overall feeling and soul of the stadium is immense, especially when a goal is scored, the players rushing over, the fans are celebrating just inches away from the players. It's just pure joy, pure magic. Um, that's something that you can't really replace. And it, I would hate for that to have to go away uh, just because some people, you know, can't go without thinking it's like a beanbag toss. <laughs> it's, as, as you said, it's, it's a, there's no other profession where you would just sit there and allow that to happen. So I'm glad, I'm glad they made some arrests. I don't think it'll be any ridiculously harsh punishments, but arrests, stadium bans, fines, these things just need to become mainstream. And once they are, people will hopefully uh, just sort of act appropriately um, and we'll be able to keep that sort of passionate connection and proximity to the fans that makes the game that much more exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's well said from both of you guys. We don't want to see that in the game. If you're one of the Spurs fans that threw that, maybe stop, maybe take a, a pause and think about what you're doing before you do something silly like that. We want to have that atmosphere. I know it's not there at three-point lane, but that's okay. That's neither <laughs> here nor there. Uh, I must be honest, guys, I didn't get to watch any more football other than the Chelsea game, but Rahul, maybe you can share some of the results from other grounds around the Premier League. Yeah, I'll do a quick wrap-up of, of the weekend fixtures. So it started off with Watford-Norwich, which was a relegation six-pointer, and honestly did not see it being a 3-0 win for Norwich City and, and Josh Sargent, the American boy, scoring two of those, one of them. Uh, I think he was paying tribute to Olivier Giroud because it was a, a, a flick with his leg and, and it, was a, it was a really good goal. So if you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out. Uh, but that put Norwich, I think, out of the relegation zone and, and Watford in the relegation zone, who then went ahead and fired the manager, uh, Ranieri, and had now brought in Roy Hudson. So the, the merry-go-around at, at Watford continues. I think the stat is the last time they kept a clean sheet since then they've had six managers <laughs> um so i guess that's the price you pay for for a club trying to stay in the premier league uh, the next game here is manchester united versus west ham uh, a top four battle you could call it and one that goes manchester united's way right at the end one nil win for them from rashford uh when i initially first saw the goal i thought it was offside but having seen the lines and, and the, with the rule change but it's a it's a fair goal. Uh, the next game here is Southampton versus Man City, and and this ends in a draw, one one. Southampton put in a great performance. Uh, Man City couldn't get the thirteenth consecutive win here uh, in the Premier League, and that is kind of opening the door for a title race, which I think is is a media strategy to keep things interesting. As as Alex said, it's Pep's turned this into a farmers league. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then Palace, Liverpool, Liverpool followed that draw against uh, that City draw with the win to kind of close the gap on them. 
and then the final game I have here is Arsenal versus Burnley, which ends nil-nil and, and adds to the frustration from the Arsenal fans because they've not won a single game in 2022. Wow. Well, nicely done. I think that's quite a round of fixtures there. And let me run through the Premier League table very quickly before we wrap up the podcast. But Manchester City sitting in first. They're there with 57 points. As you alluded to, Liverpool in second place with 48 points, but do have a game in hand and could close down that gap a little bit more. And City drawing, maybe we have a title race going, guys. I don't know. In third place is Chelsea with 47 points, but they have played 24 games. And so there's a little bit of a worry there with Manchester United in fourth place with 22 games played and 38 points. And West Ham really close behind in fifth place and 37 points. And really, the title is the table is very, very tight from then on out. At the bottom, like you talked about, Newcastle sitting in 18th with 15 points, just a point behind Norwich. Watford getting dragged down into this battle now deeper and deeper, sitting in, in 19th with 14 points. And Burnley, stock bottom with 12 points so far. Well, I think that's it's been a great episode, guys. Uh, Alex, any parting thoughts? Uh, we've talked, We've covered a lot, and there's no Premier League this weekend, but um, hopefully you'll be out uh, from your from your little isolation and, and can get back to to doing living a normal life as as long as possible. Yes, it's it's been nice. It's been good to be uh, good to be back, and hopefully both myself and Chelsea will come through this next little rest period uh, reinvigorated and and ready to get some results on the Chelsea front. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how these players do after a little bit of rest, a little break. Um, and hopefully we're in for, for a strong uh, push to the uh, ending part of the season. Absolutely. Hopefully with uh, the players traveling and stuff, no COVID issues. Jackie, your parting thoughts? Yeah, Alex summarized it well. I think with the traveling going on, they got to stay safe. We can't afford too many more players to be out at this point in the season. And really, between now and the next game, maybe Chelsea can surprise us with a transfer uh, miracle. Maybe we get a wing back in in the last minute. But no, other than that, you know, we've gone through the blips of December. January is almost over. Maybe we can go over the January blips now and start strong in February. Yeah, and there's a lot to look forward in February. There's the FA Cup, Club World Cup, return of the Champions League, obviously the Premier League. So, uh, and the Carabao Cup final. I almost forgot that. So, a lot to look forward to and a lot to play for uh, the rest of the season. But that wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please continue to subscribe, like, and follow us. It's at the Premier Chelsea on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Instagram. Uh, and on YouTube. Uh, we are on YouTube, so definitely check us out. And on Twitter, it's at the Premier Chelsea. Uh, if for some reason you don't follow Alex, drop him a follow too. It's at FC 22 And as always, send us your feedback, continue to interact with us, and, and we will be back with a new episode. But until then, stay safe and up the Chelsea.